Morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Um, we're going to continue our uh, study of the book of Mark this morning, and uh, we had a bit of a break last week, and uh, we're now going to continue on with that from chapter 15, verses 33 to 47. And Pastor Tom has just done a fantastic job leading us through the book of Mark over the last couple of years. And when he said that a couple of uh, weeks ago, he said, you know, it's been two years that we've been studying Mark. I was really surprised. It just didn't seem to me to be anywhere near that long. But now we're beginning to uh, draw to a climax as we're in the last uh, two chapters, chapters 15 and 16. And two weeks ago, Tom covered chapter 15, 16 to 32. And you may recall if you were here that he introduced the thought that Mark had framed uh, his explanations of Jesus' life from what we call the Gospel of Isaiah, that glorious Old Testament passage of Scripture in the latter part of uh, Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. And at the very start of the Gospel, his Gospel, Mark writes... The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And Mark is referencing Old Testament scriptures from Isaiah and also from Malachi uh, in effect, showing that though he had primarily the Jewish audience at the Roman church to who he was writing to in mind, he was not disconnecting the gospel from the Old Testament. And how could he? How could any of the New Testament writers? The, the phrase, the word of God, is mentioned some 40-odd times in the New Testament. And obviously, it is not referring to the New Testament, it's referring to the Old Testament because the New Testament was still in the progress of being written. And over 5,000 times in the Old Testament, we read, God said, or thus says the Lord, indicating the Old Testament to be the very word of the living God. But Mark is, of course, confirming that Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah, but the saviour of the entire world. And he is priest, prophet, and king. So Mark uses these Old Testament writings as a springboard into his gospel. And Mark is retelling a story that fulfills what Isaiah predicted in great detail some 700 years before it happened. Tom covered last time in the passage of Mark 15, 16 to 32, described the, the sufferings that Jesus voluntarily suffered to deliver sinful men and women like you and me from the cross. It detailed how the soldiers dressed Jesus in purple and they, they forced a crown of thorns upon his head and twisted it and disgracefully beat him and spat on him and bowed to him in mocked worship. They ridiculed and laughed at the Jew who claimed to be a king. Even the Jewish priests added their own contempt, claiming we have no king but Caesar. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, they put his own clothes on him, and they led him to be crucified. He was crucified in a place called Golgotha, a place of the skull, that's how it's translated, outside the city walls, the place of rejection. Neither Mark nor the other three gospel writers go into any great detail describing the crucifixion, 
perhaps so as not to arouse our pity, but instead arouse our faith. And as terrible as the crucifixion was, it was not something that only Jesus endured. The, the Romans commonly punished offenders and criminals by nailing or tying them to a beam uh, and leaving them to hang to death by either exhaustion or asphyxiation. And we heard about some of the great agonies that Jesus suffered in Psalm 22, which Caleb read for us this morning in the call to worship. But he endured more than just physical agony. He took upon himself the righteous anger or the wrath of God in the place of all sinners who would ever trust in him for their salvation. This was something far more agonizing than any human being could ever endure. And it was the prospect of having to endure the wrath of God that caused his sweat to become like great drops of blood falling down to the ground when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Luke twenty-two forty-two, And we see in Isaiah's gospel that the prediction that all this was going to happen. Isaiah said, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Jesus' appearance was so marred and disfigured that it was hard to recognize that he was human at all. People looked at him with utter astonishment. The Jews looked at him with profound degradation and derision and scoffing because they thought, well, how could this be our Messiah? Isaiah continues, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he hid, as it were, his face from us. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Isaiah 53.3 Man of sorrows, we sing the song. Despised, rejected by Judas, his disciple, by Annas, the high priest, by Caiaphas, the official high priest, by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and by the Roman soldiers who crucified him. And maybe, worst of all, by his own people. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, John 1.11. He was so despised and rejected that even those who were crucified with him reviled him, although one later repented. And yet, he did this for his chosen nation, the Jews, and for the Gentile believers who had come to him by faith. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53, 4. Isaiah also writes, he was, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus suffered quietly and did not fight back. Something Mark's readers in the church in Rome would also need to learn to do as they faced official persecution there. The Apostle Peter speaks about this in his first epistle. He says, For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? For when, but when you do good and suffer, and if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For you, for you to this were also called, because Christ also suffered, 
having, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, was there, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2. Interestingly, we see the mockings of those who, who revile Jesus sort of taking aim at, at his God-ordained offices. They mocked him as prophet. They said, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days. And they failed to see that he was prophesying about the temple of his body and that we'd be raised up after three days. And they mocked him as king. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend from the cross that we may see and believe. Mark 15, 32. And they mocked him as saviour, saying he was an imposter and able to save even himself. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking amongst themselves with the scribes said, he saved others himself, he cannot save. Mark 15, 31. So this is, this is where we left off last time. Isaiah's suffering, sin-bearing servant, bloodied and crucified and hanging on a cross. And now we continue Mark's account. Would you turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 47. <clears throat> now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. And then someone rang and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come down and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Lesson of Joses, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled that he was not already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he'd been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And then he bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Mark mentions specific hours in this section. The Jews measured daylight from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So the third hour was 
9am. The sixth hour was 12 noon. The ninth hour was 3pm. And just a quick point here. If you read Gospels, John, it says that around the sixth hour, Pontius Pilate sat down in the judgment seat and brought Jesus out for trial. So this obviously seems to contradict Mark's account, which says Jesus was crucified three hours before that on the third hour. And that from sixth hour to the ninth hour, between 12 and noon, there was darkness over the whole land. So who's correct? Well, they both are. The simple case is that Mark was using the Jewish method of reckoning time and John was using the Roman method of reckoning time, the same as what we use today. So don't let that throw you. It was during this darkness from the sixth to the ninth hour that Jesus was made sin for us. For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And again, on top of the devastating physical agony that Jesus endured, the agony of consuming the cup of God's wrath and drinking it down to its dregs on behalf of sinners is something the human mind cannot even begin to understand. The cup is a term used several times in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation as a symbol of God's angry judgment against sin. But in Psalm 116, it's also used to symbolize the receiving of God's salvation. The psalmist says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Psalm 116, 12 to 13. And just by the way, if you didn't know, Australia's first preacher, a 32-year-old Englishman named Richard Johnson, preached from this very text the very first sermon on Australian soil, on Sunday, February 3, 1788, within a month of the landing of the first fleet. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And may these verses be a prophetic picture of things to come in this nation for many, many of God's people. And then in line with the salvation theme, we have the cup used in reference to the Last Supper. Jesus completely emptied the cup of God's wrath so our sins could be forgiven so that we may drink of the cup of salvation, symbolized when we take up the cup at communion. The darkness in our text symbolized the judgment of God that Jesus experienced for our sins, suffering spiritual desolation and separation from God. We don't know the, the geographical extent of this darkness, but some of the early church fathers believed that it extended uh, even beyond the land of Israel. But there is little doubt that the darkness was a visible, miraculous sign calculated to uh, address the attention of those who were in Jerusalem. The Jewish multitudes, Ananias and Caiaphas and their unbelieving companions in the Sanhedrin, Gentiles like Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers who crucified him. One commentary says, What did the, miracle, the miraculous darkness teach? It taught the exceeding wickedness of the Jewish nation. They were actually crucifying their own Messiah. They were slaying their own king. The sun itself hid its face from the sight. It taught the exceeding sinfulness of sin in the eyes of God. The Son of God himself was left without the cheering light of day 
And when he became sin for us, when he became sin for us and carried our transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. Isaiah 53.5. So Jesus experienced the terrible darkness of God's judgment for three hours that we should not experience the everlasting chains of darkness forever. This is the profound and sobering message that we should take away from this account. Next, we read some of the most disturbing and haunting words in the whole of Scripture. Jesus crying out the following heartbreaking words. Eli, Eli, lama sabatani. That is why to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fact that these words are also recorded in the original Hebrew indicates that they are so important that the writer didn't want anything to be misunderstood. The cry is the fulfilment of Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? It is one of the many parallels between Psalm 22 and the specific events of the crucifixion. So why was Jesus forsaken by his Father? He was God's own holy, harmless and undefiled Son. He was innocent of all the false accusations brought against him. He lived a sinless life, perfectly fulfilling the law of God. He did nothing that would forfeit God's favour. The very situation he is in, hanging on the cross, is as a result of obedience to God. So for none of these things would have God have forsaken him. And it is certain that he was still God's beloved son in whom he was well, well pleased. Now again, Isaiah's gospel sheds some light on this. It says about the Messiah, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of, of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. For we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 4-6. Most who heard Jesus cry out probably thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But he died because of our sins to redeem us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. He was made a sin offering and died in our place on our account that he might bring us near to God. And this is what intensified Jesus' sufferings and part of why he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In some unexplained way, Jesus was a, experienced the full manifestations of God's angry judgment against sin in that terrible hour. In the suffering and the rejection that he endured, he provided a way which we can be saved from eternal death. In those awful moments when God placed the sin of the world on Jesus and allowed evil men to do to him whatever they wanted to do, the Lord expressed his feelings of abandonment. And for a time, Jesus felt misery and desolation of being completely unconscious of his father's presence. There's also another possible reason 
um, that, that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Jesus' time, the, the, the scriptures were not laid out in chapters and verses like we have them today. So if a, if a rabbi wanted to direct his hearers to a particular passage of scripture, he would recite the first few lines of the text. And it could be that Jesus' intent in quoting Psalm 22.1 was to direct his hearers to Psalm 22. If they read Psalm 22, they would no doubt read of the many uh, prophecies that were fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross. And it could be that our Lord, even while he was on the cross and experienced the, the agony of the cross, was teaching the crowds and providing once more, proving once more that he was the Messiah and that he fulfilled the scriptures. And there are also some lessons that we can learn from this. Um, first, thought, first thought, though, is that we must acknowledge that Jesus' sufferings were unique and the sort we will never have to face. But we too, through though we're chosen and, and, and beloved by God, uh, the Father may sometimes feel the Father's face turned away from us. It could be that we're suffering a, a terrible illness that just seems to have no end. We may be uh, lamenting that we have prayed for our unsaved children and, and relatives for a long, long time, and yet they're still not saved. They're still lost and walking in darkness. It might be a situation where we have unfairly lost our job and our livelihood, not because of anything wrong that we have done. In fact, we've been faithful to our employers, but we find ourselves in that unjust and unfair situation. Or it may be that we have carelessly and neglectfully being careless and neglectful in our Christian walk. And God has graciously allowed us to feel these experiences of lostness and darkness in, in, in an effort to draw us back to himself. Whatever the reason, if we feel forsaken, we can learn from Jesus' experience not to give way to despair. We, ought, we must and ought, ought to search our hearts to see if secret sins and unholy attitudes have brought these feelings of abandonment upon us. But we must not hastily conclude that we are self-deceivers without grace. The Bible gives us a great example of the patriarch Job who experienced some just terrible, terrible, terrible things and the most horrible afflictions imaginable and yet he was still able to say, Though the Lord slay me, yet I will trust in him. Job 13, 15. Next, Mark records some of the onlookers suggesting that Jesus was calling for Elijah to come and save him, save him when, he missed, when they mistook the words Eli, Eli, which means my God, my God, but sounds like the first part of Elijah's name. And John's gospel then records that Jesus was about to die as he was about to die, said, I thirst. And someone soaked a sponge in sour wine and offered it to him at the end of a reed. And then Jesus cried out his final words. John's gospel records, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And when the centurion opposite saw that he cried out like this, he declared, truly, this man was the son of God. Jesus died. He truly died. But his death was an act of his own will, not an involuntary collapse. 
Jesus had previously said, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. And the command, this is the command that I have received from my Father, John 10, 17 to 18. J.C. Ryle comments, The death of our Lord Jesus Christ is the most important fact in Christianity. On it depends the hopes of all saved sinners for both time and eternity. We need not therefore be surprised to find the reality of death, of his death, placed beyond dispute. Three kinds of witnesses to the fact are brought before us in the verses we have now read. The Roman centurion who, who stood near the cross. The women who followed our Lord from Galilee to Jerusalem. The disciples who buried him were all witnesses that Jesus really died. Their united evidence is above suspicion. They could not be deceived. What they saw was no swoon, no, no trance, no temporary insensibility. They saw the same Jesus who was crucified lay down his life and become obedient even to the point of death. Let this be established in our minds. Our Saviour really and truly died. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the veil was a massive curtain about estimated to be about 18 metres high and about 10 centimetres in thickness that separated the most holy place or called the Holy of Holies sometimes where God's earthly presence dwelt from the rest of the sanctuary where men dwelt. And the temple veil signified that man was separated from God by sin. Only the high priest was allowed to go in beyond the veil into the most holy place and only once a year to, on the Day of Atonement in order to make animal sacrifices for the Jewish nation. And he had to do this year after year because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away a person's sin but only cover it for a time. Hebrews 10 2 to 4 tells us, but in no sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sins. But now, Jesus has purchased for his people freedom from the entire sacrificial animal sacrifice system. The tearing of the veil was a supernatural act of God, indicating that through Christ's death, the way into the sanctuary of God was now open and a privilege for all believers. Hebrews 10, 19-22 in the NLT just says it so well. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great priest, Jesus, who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. A great new era had been ushered in for all who trust in Christ, Jew and Gentile. They now had access by faith into heaven's most holy place. 
Mark's narrative goes on to make an honorable mention of women who were, many women who were present, some by the cross, as it says in John 19, and some looking on from afar, and even mentions some of them by name. These women had faithfully followed Jesus and ministered to his needs in Galilee and came up with him to Jerusalem. Their supportive loyalty was in sharp contrast to the disciples who were all scattered. Some of the most truly courageous Christians I have known are women. And I don't say that as some politically correct platitude. I've at times seen women courageously rise up for the cause of Christ with selfless disregard for their own reputation or safety in circumstances where men have failed to take a stand. So it doesn't really surprise me to find them mentioned here. God's grace sometimes shines brightest through the weaker vessel that he might confound those who are seen to be mighty. And we see many times in Scripture how God's grace is glorified in women through whom God has been pleased to confer many blessings to his people. Their work is often done in the background. They kind of look on from, the far, from afar like the women at the cross. But we honour and love and appreciate what they do for the cause of Christ and we simply could not function in what God has called us as a church to do without them. It was important for Jesus' place of execution to be cleared quickly because it was a high day Sabbath, as John 19 puts it, and it was about to, uh, it was about to commence. And Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Jewish council, took courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, the right to a burial was forfeited under Roman law for those criminals who had been given a death sentence, but their bodies were usually given to relatives or those near to them if they asked for them. There is no evidence that that Jesus' brothers or sisters were in Jerusalem, and Mary, his mother, as you can imagine, must have been suffering uh, physical and emotional exhaustion from this ordeal, and so... Uh, and you know, and Jesus' disciples fled, as I mentioned, except for John, who who had commissioned from the cross. Jesus had commissioned from the cross to look after his mother. So, in the absence of all those close to Jesus, Joseph asked for the pilot uh, for the pilot for the body of Jesus. And John's, John's gospel tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly from fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And that Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. John 19, 38 to 39. Now, we don't read much about Joseph of Arimathea during the life and ministry of Jesus, but here he is showing love to Jesus as he takes his, his tortured, blood-splattered body and takes care of it, and the Bible calls him a disciple. And this can remind us that there are those within the church who are hidden and seem irrelevant until they're brought forward by special circumstances. After Jesus, after Joseph was given permission to have the body of Jesus, he took him down and wrapped his body in fine linen and put him in a tomb which had been carved out of the rock. And then the door of the tomb was sealed by a, a coin uh, like rock, which was rolled into the groove carved out of stone. 
And we see the two Marys mentioned earlier again present, displaying unwavering and fearless affection for Jesus. And it's not the last that we hear of them. In Mark's account, we will hear the rest of the story next time. Um, Just in closing, um, Pastor Tom was somewhat disappointed that he could not bring to us today what he terms as the the drill in the crown of Mark's gospel. But truly, I think he still will. Uh, He'll have that privilege when he preaches in the final chapter of Mark, and we look very much forward to him doing that next week, God willing. Now, I want to close today again with some commentary on our passage by J.C. Ryle. He says, Let us notice lastly in this passage what honour our Lord Jesus Christ has placed on the grave by allowing himself to be laid in it. We read that he was laid in a sepulchre, hewn out of rock and a stone rolled across the door. This is a fact that in a dying world we should always remember it is appointed unto men to die once. We're all going to one place and we naturally shrink from it. The coffin, the funeral, the the worm, the corruption are all painful subjects. They chill us, sadden us and fill our minds with heaviness. It is not in flesh and blood to regard them without solemn feelings. One thing, however, ought to comfort believers. And that is the thought that the grave is the place where the Lord once lay. And as surely as he rose again, victorious from the tomb, so surely we shall all who believe in him rise gloriously in the day of his appearing. Remembering this, we may look down with calmness into the grave. We may recollect that Jesus was once there on our behalf and has robbed death of its sting. We may say to ourselves, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, 57. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of Christ. Lord, we thank you that this is not some fantastic story made up of men, by, by, merely made up by men, but it is your truth. It actually happened. And it is the most incredible single event that possibly ever happened in history and ever will happen. We thank you that through Jesus' voluntary death and suffering, through him absorbing your wrath, that the way to the Holy of Holies, the way into your presence has been cleared. He has made a way. And all who believe and trust in him, all who repent of their sins, can come to him freely and drink of the water of life. Father, we pray that there will be those who will hear this message this morning, Lord, who your spirit will move. Lord, move to recognize that they are sinners in need of salvation. Move to recognize that there is absolutely no other way, that good works will not save them because we have to be perfect just like Jesus is perfect. And that's why he was made sin for us, that we may become perfectly righteous just like God is perfectly righteous. So, Father, our prayer is moved by your Spirit. Bring conviction upon sinners. 
And we thank you for the death of Jesus and for the glory of the cross. Amen.